I'm going to pass around a basket of acorns. <laughs> this will become clear why I'm doing that later. But I'd like you to just choose one that appeals to you and care for it while I talk. Make a little space for it. <clears throat> so this talk feels pretty vulnerable making for me uh, for a couple different reasons. One, I'll be talking about some very personal things. And two, I have this, I had this ambitious scope, some very different things I wanted to try to link together and in the end deliver a brilliant and sophisticated <laughs> conclusion that you'd all be able to put in your back pocket. Uh, the reality of my life is it didn't get all tied together brilliantly, uh, so I decided that was your job. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just lay it out there and we'll see where we go from this. Um, what I want to describe to you is what I thought I was doing and going to accomplish when I began Zen 14 years ago and how that has changed especially over the last four years. And I set out to do this not out of any special desire to be self-revelatory, but because I have a hunch that some of my experiences are not unique and so I, to me. And so I offer this in the spirit of service. And so what I've come to realize is that Zen practice in itself was not what I thought it would be. It has not been the sole means through which I could reduce suffering and live the vibrant, fulfilling life that I aspire to. It has been, of course, fundamental, but in ways different than I believed it would be. And in the last four years, I have discovered that in addition to Zen practice, there were three primary things that I needed to feel a fuller sense of vibrancy in my path of awakening. The first of those is a emotional and psychological growth and some resolution of old issues. The second is a somatic or body awareness fostered in the movement practice. And the third is love. And I don't mean here romantic love. I could also use deep connectedness, relatedness, intimacy. And having journeyed into other arenas where those experiences could be more fostered, this has then in turn informed my sitting practice. And I have a larger sense of the whole as being made up of these, uh, these different but mutually informing components. When I first came to Zen, the question I was most consciously asking myself was how will I conduct my family and individual spiritual practice in the context of an, an interfaith marriage, Judeo-Catholic being a particular circumstance. And Buddhism seemed like a viable alternative at the time. But fairly soon it became clear to me that I was not going to be able to rest easily in that marriage. And I began to look to Zen 
as a place to reduce the suffering I was undergoing. And this is where I began to undertake Zen with certain misunderstandings. This will happen. Rising fall. <laughs> I took refuge in teachings like, life is not difficult for those with no preferences. Or, we walk the path alone, following signposts left by others. I believed that if I just sat with enough discipline and enough rigor, I would surely be able to extinguish my desire for my marriage to be different than it was. And when that didn't work, I thought, if I sat with even more rigor, I'd be able to experience that oneness with everything alone in the zendo. But that didn't work. And I would experience great frustration and pain, especially deep in a week-long session. All those teachings about non-duality, the interdependence of all things, the oneness of everything. I would feel furious sometimes, not having any experiential understanding of what the hell that meant. So, four years ago, I moved from New York to Sebastopol. It became clear that my marriage had lived its lifespan, and I needed some other resources than what I had known to date to deal with the pain in my life. The first thing I needed to do was some psychological work to examine the origins of my own patterns of reactivity in my failing marriage. In that work, I found some profoundly powerful and disturbing self-beliefs I was not aware that I had. There was very serious violence and trauma in my childhood. As I learned in my studies in attachment theory, children are biologically wired to attach to their caregivers. A child whose caregivers are also the source of terror or abandonment, or both, is not biologically equipped to handle the bind she finds herself in. So she does what she needs to do to normalize this reality. Since this all-powerful caregiver is directing anger and violence at me, I must deserve it. I must have done something wrong. So if I change, if I can figure out how to be in the world in a way that is acceptable to this caregiver, perhaps I can stop the pain I am being subjected to. That drive in me to figure out how to be in the world became a motivating force in my life. 
With overall useful results, it is what spurred my intellectual successes. Since academic achievement was a sure way, I knew I could earn my father's pride. And it was in part to what spurred my spiritual journey. <coughs> As I felt underneath this wounded brokenness, a part of me that longed to experience the wholeness described in spiritual teachings. But not having done the work to resolve those, those initial places of brokenness, I encountered unrecognized roadblocks. I remember one winter in Manhattan doing some koan work and coming to that place of existential crisis where unknown beliefs drop away and all that's left is darkness and chaos and uncertainty. In an urgent dokusan with my teacher, I wept in this devastating experiential realization. There is no God. There is nothing outside myself. And my teacher was encouraging. You've got it, she said. Keep going. But what she could not see nor could I at the time, was that I had only gotten part of the koan. Nor did she or I see what I did with that dropping away of received beliefs. Where I took this, without really realizing it, was, well, what is inside myself is so clearly broken so clearly not whole and not lovable, there is clearly no divinity in me. Therefore, there must just be no divinity. I was left utterly bereft, but the teachings kept speaking of oneness and the ungraspable. So I determined to just sit all the more mightily. There was an emotional, psychological element that needed attention from me that it did not get. So this existential awareness without emotional wholeness did not alleviate suffering. I was in the midst of what John Wellwood calls spiritual bypassing. I had never heard this term until a couple years ago when I read an interview in Tricycle titled Buddha Nature, Human Nature. And here's what John Wellwood uh, how he defines spiritual bypassing. A widespread tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. When we are spiritually bypassing, we often use the goal of awakening or liberation to try to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced and made peace with it. One might, for example, try to practice non-attachment by dismissing one's need for love. 
but this only drives the need underground, where it is likely to become acted out in covert, unconscious, and possibly harmful ways. Reading this was very uncomfortable for me, and yet validating, as I recognized much of my own spiritual efforts in it. Another important realization during this period was how much of my life I had spent in my head. I did not realize that I had spent my life in my head. I was always relying on my head to figure out how to be in the world. I was someone who was only courageous enough to show up in the world in the areas I knew I already had strength in, the areas that had been my strengths in surviving a scary childhood. Academic achievement was reliance on language and the world of literature experienced in solitude and silence. What helped me to realize this and began to shift it was some very powerful craniosacral work and dance. The dance practice I got involved in is called soul motion, and it's conscious dance, a practice of presence through movement. I call it my Zen practice in movement. It turns out that my body in movement has access to wisdoms and ways to move through difficulties that I did not realize were possible. This practice helped me to experience, in a body-felt way, how there were ways in which my skewed undertaking of Zen practice had enabled me to super-specialize in traits I'd already come to rely on. Discipline. Silence. Keeping things inside. Non-movement. Traits that had not reduced suffering. I want to make clear that I don't see this as a fault of Zen, but rather my own distortions of practice. My Zen teacher in New York repeatedly told me, your head won't get you there, Loretta. Drop into your belly. Stay in the body. But Zazen alone was not enough for me to learn how to do that, because I did not have enough of a sense of what it felt like to be in my body until I started dancing. In dancing, I had to show up as visible in a totally new way, had to face fears and inhibitions, and learn to trust that there was space for it all. In this dance practice, I learned how to be present to minute movements in the body where they came from, how they developed, what they felt like. And now, experiencing the richness available in the minute awareness of the body, this practice informs my sitting, allowing me to be present in Zazen in a richer way.
And the last thing I want to be talk about as needful to my spiritual path is love. But I want to talk about it in what may, may seem an odd way by telling you a bit about brain science. I have been completely taken by the work of Dan Siegel, a child psychiatrist who has done pioneering work in the field of interpersonal neurobiology and uh, Mindsight. His book Mindsight is one thing, and also his The Neurobiology of We, which I plowed through this summer. Um, before I go into more detail, so that you don't wonder why on earth I'm dragging you through this, I want you to hear the definition of something Siegel has termed transpiration. Transpiration, the state of awareness of the interconnected nature of reality that places our own identities in the membership of a whole larger than our bodily defined selves. Yes! <laughs> That's it! That's what I want! So how do I get there? So, that's that. In interpersonal neurobiology, Siegel explains how our brains are literally wired in early childhood based on the experiences we have, most importantly, on the kinds of parenting we receive. <laughs> From the earliest days when an infant cries, expressing a need, she is learning about the world. Can the caregiver perceive the communication, make sense of it, and respond appropriately? If so, the infant learns that the world is a safe place to be. This give and take is called contingent communication and is the basis for secure attachment. When that contingent communication is not present, different kinds of insecure attachment occur. And um, they're called ambivalent, anxious, or disorganized attachment. These patterns of parent-child interactions then affect the de development of children's brains so that certain neuronal pathways are wired in some attachment situations and other neuronal pathways are wired in other attachment situations. This brain wiring then affects what experiences we are capable of having as adults. Siegel discusses the functions of the different areas of the brain and the three primary areas are the limbic and the cortex and the prefrontal cortex of the brain. What's most interesting to me as a Zen practitioner is this prefrontal cortex, specifically the middle prefrontal cortex, which is right there. The middle prefrontal cortex is crucial for these nine life capacities body regulation, attuned communication, emotional balance, response flexibility, empathy, insight, fear extinction, intuition, and morality. And these middle prefrontal functions 
are also associated with the outcome of secure attachment between child and caregiver. So you may be thinking, well, this sounds terrible. What if we didn't get the good stuff back then? Am I screwed for life? <laughs> you know? Well, no. The good news is neuroplasticity. Throughout our lives, the experiences we have can literally rewire the brain to expand our capacities. Most significantly for us as practitioners, Siegel talks about mindful awareness practices as one way to encourage development of these nine middle prefrontal functions. But the practices Siegel encourages, what he calls mind sight, involve not only strengthening awareness of the workings of the mind, as we do in Zazen, but also things like reconnecting mind and body, resolving unresolved or traumatic issues in the past, making sense of the attachment experiences we had in childhood. And he actually has a system of nine forms of integration that he discusses, that these functions are integrating left and right brain, horizontal, vertical, sense of time, fear of mortality. And it's only after all of these kinds of integration are happening that the ninth form of integration, transpiration, is possible. And at that point, people begin to feel a sense that they are connected to a larger whole beyond their immediate lives, outside the previous sense of isolation they may have been feeling from themselves and from others. So it's a literal brain capacity. We cannot, according to Siegel in this theory, we cannot get to the feeling of oneness until we've done our personal work to rewire the brain to literally make that experience possible for us to feel. So back to love. For the first decade that I practiced Zen, while I was pounding my head against abstractions like oneness and interdependence, I had very little experiential context that allowed me to repattern the disorganized attachment I experienced as a child. When I began doing this work, I experienced a triad of loving and therapeutic relationships, and Jisha was one of those, wherein people were interested in my well-being just because. And that was incredibly new and touching for me. These experiences of being seen and met for who I was in all my perceived brokenness invoked in me a deep sense of gratitude and trust in these relationships, which then were deepened and extended in the dance practice and grounded in Zazen. I began to experience the world as a safe place to be and am beginning to be able to show up in the world in new and different ways. 
And so my experience of what I was doing in Zazen shifted. Zazen is the place where this all gets to be integrated, settled down into my bones so that more can emerge from my deeper being. And the more I do all of this in an integrated way, the more I can get experiential glimpses of that oneness that I've had such a hunger for. But I understand now that it's a long process and that I need companionship and support along the way. I cannot reach enlightenment or experientially know that feeling of interconnectedness any sooner than my own growing will arrange. And that's as it should be. So I'm able to feel more compassion for myself in my journey. And I have been encouraged by the teachings that I see in seeds and acorns. They have in them this incredible wisdom and knowledge. In this acorn is all the information it needs to grow into a massive and strong and awesome tree. But it needs a nurturing environment. It needs the right combination of soil and water and sunlight. And it cannot grow into a tree any faster than it was designed to or any sooner than its environment permits. I cannot smash open this acorn tree, acorn, and get an oak tree out of it. (coughs) For me, then, All these experiences over these long years are the perfect unfolding of my own oak tree. And when I can remember that and take faith in that, I am encouraged. So in our sitting and dancing and loving Let us be sun and soil and water for one another. Let us honor the slow unfolding of roots and branches and leaves. And let us have faith that thus we will grow beautiful gardens and forests. (laughs) 